Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to this special episode of For Jesus. I'm Robin Howie, and here with some guys from Gateway. So excited to continue a conversation that actually started last Wednesday night at Student Ministry. We didn't ask anything. If you've been around Gateway very long, you know we do that every January church-wide, but we wanted to do it with our high school students, and so we just ran out of time, and so we are going to pick up where we left off. But before we get to that, I want to introduce who is with us today. We have Mark Andrus, our care pastor, Seth Trout, our executive pastor, and Arnold Reese, our student high school pastor. So before we get started, guys, I wanted to ask you a question of if you had one thing you could change about your high school years or something you did, what would it be? Easy. If I could change one thing about my high school years, it'd be that I would be like 6'5 or 6'6". Six, six. Okay. <laughs> All right. I would just be much more athletically successful if I was 6'5". Maybe even six six. So it would have been a totally different experience for me. Is that what you're looking yeah, for? <laughs> One yeah, thing I'd like yeah. to change. Something is you could be change. taller. Could be anything. I don't yep. know if you were looking for like a realistic possible answer. Uh I uh, I made a bad decision. Uh I was never going to play baseball past my high school years. Um and so I wish that I would have stayed playing baseball through my senior year. Instead I dropped doing baseball to be able to do other things like band and chorus. Um, which is great, but I can continue singing all the time. Never baseball's passed, so I, I kind of regret that. Wish I would have done one more year. You uh, cut your glory days short, Mark. You cut yeah. the glory days short. Super, super glorious. I had one at bat in varsity in my uh, junior year and lined out to the left fielder. That was my one. I didn't strike out. There's that. Lining there out is, that. is better than striking out. Yeah, uh, I think I would have probably answered exactly uh, what Seth answered. Uh, but since he already answered that, I, I should probably give my, my answer B, and that would probably be that, uh, yeah, I think I would have loved to take more uh, risks in high school um, and do more things. I think I was waiting for myself to peak outside of high school. So I, uh, I, w- I would have taken more risks, I think. That's great. What about you, Robin? Oh, if I could change anything um, from high school, um, well... I almost didn't graduate from high school because I missed a lot of classes my senior year. So uh, I, I did. Feel like I did graduate there. So I probably maybe would have been a little more involved, paid attention. So you mean to tell me that you're about to have two master's degrees and you skipped a lot of school in high school? Well, I only had one class after lunch, and we had an open campus, and so it was super hard to go back for that one class. Just so so, so difficult. It was really hard times back then. Total suffering if you would have gone back for sure. Yeah, back in 1989. So anyway, um, yeah. So, but you know, that's okay. You can turn anything around, folks. Okay, so we're going to get started um, and pick up with the question. I think that um, I got this several times on Wednesday night, but it's basically, how can I know what God wants me to do, even if it's something I don't want to do? How can I know that it's God? It's a great question. I think understanding God's will for us is uh, is difficult because so much of it is extremely clear and some of it is not very clear. One of the things that makes it really clear is uh, like there's certain places where God says his will for us, you know, like in First Corinthians says, God's will for you is that you be sexually pure, right? So that's one thing. We know God's will for us is that we obey his commands and do that type of thing. But when it comes to like our specific living out of those things, uh, it's pretty difficult to discern because most of the time, God doesn't 
give us any type of special direct revelation. Most of the time it ends up functioning like a stewardship question. What am I good at? What am I passionate about? Am I using my gifts, talents, skills? Am I leveraging uh, my influence, my power, my position to maximize my impact on the world and and specifically like maximize my ability to love the world and those around me? And that requires a lot of wisdom and discernment, and God leaves a ton of that open to us. I was talking to someone just this morning. He said, what should I do next in my career? Mm. And he gave me like four or five things he was thinking through. And kind of what I told him was, the nice thing is, is there's no wrong options. There's just a variety of pros and cons that God's given you to sort through. And I encourage you in community with prayer to just recognize that God's left this up to you to choose. And you have to choose it and kind of set it and forget it. There's an element of that. Kevin DeYoung wrote a little book called Just Do Something, which mm-hmm. is all about yeah. sometimes it's not helpful to agonize over what exactly is God's will for my life. It's helpful to just start moving and take steps and think through what do I have that I can use to subdue and cultivate the earth, contribute to society, love my neighbor, and uh, to not be over overly concerned about the specifics of what God's asking me to do. I think you know there's the number of times that God wrote on the wall and gave really clear direction to people is limited even throughout the book of acts it's a lot of people kind of praying and then deciding not necessarily god always giving them the exact thing they're supposed to do that's great yeah i think uh, a part b to that involves the question of power like okay so maybe i think i might know what this would look like uh you know especially if it's like oh I, i'm working on my this will be good for my character if i do this it will not be good for my character if i don't do that but then how do i go about doing that and and kind of knowing that i'm in the right space um, and I, I think, I think on the question of power, um, it, it begins by starting small. You know, the, there's a biblical rhythm that Paul sets in place where he's like, you got to put to death the flesh daily. And so, um, you know, your ability to, uh, to know and to do uh, the will of God, um, it, it, just like any endeavor, it's, it, it starts small. You don't, you, you know, you don't begin with... Um, like if I'm to use a workout metaphor, you don't begin swole, be able to lift a ton of weight. You know, you begin uh, with the bar and you start there and, uh, you know, you you begin that rhythm and that over time you get better at it. Yeah, that's great. One thing I would add, just the, the second part of that question is, you know, I think even if I don't want to, um, there are certain things that, that God calls us to that we aren't necessarily excited about. Like about some of the biblical instructions to pursue reconciliation when there's brokenness in relationships. There's a part where Jesus is talking about, hey, if you're bringing your sacrifice to the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your sacrifice at the altar, go and make it right. Um, acknowledging my wrongdoing and asking forgiveness and trying to pursue reconciliation with somebody is not usually a fun thing that I want to do. Um, but it is in alignment with God's design for relationships and for unity in relationships. Um, so there is an aspect of there are times where God calls us to do things that we don't necessarily want to. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily anticipate that most of the things that I'm supposed to do are things I don't want to do. Actually, quite the opposite. Psalm 37, 4 is a verse that often gets taken out of context. which says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Um, that doesn't mean God's a genie that as long as you delight in him enough, he'll give you what you want. But it's more of this, it's this kind of reframing, restructuring of the heart that the more you pursue joy in Christ, the more you pursue what what brings God joy, the more he will change your heart and cause you to want the things that he wants for you, which is going to be more in alignment with pursuing the stuff that Seth talked about in terms of the forming and shaping character, integrity, fruit of the spirit, God's will to pursue justice, mercy, peace, sexual purity, so on. Um, 
And so like, there's not this like extra holy piece of like, I'm a better Christian because I did this thing that I really didn't want to do. Like that actually shouldn't be a, a primary component of it. That's great. Well, leading towards um, following the Lord and, and doing things he's commanded, this is our next question. It says, I really want to get baptized. I love God. I have full faith in him and I think about him often and I'm grateful for all he does for me. But sometimes I feel a small doubt, like what if it's not the right time? When is the right time to get baptized and what is the process of getting baptized through Redemption Gateway? So when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him, I think it's the right time to get baptized. Now, there's wisdom to when that should happen. Like we generally recommend that people wait till they're at least teenagers to do that. Partially because the line of discerning between your faith and your parents' faith before you're a teenager is uh, pretty difficult to discern. Uh, adolescence has appeared what psychologists called individuation, kind of becoming your own person, separating from your parents. And I think that being able to discern some of those things into your teenage years, uh, it's probably more likely that you're actually wanting to follow Jesus, not just trying to please your parents or impress them, et cetera, et cetera. So we generally recommend that as like a wisdom principle. I think if... Uh, being nervous about having a doubt, uh, I think, is a silly reason not to get baptized. And here's why. is because uh, periods of doubts and weakness of faith are to be expected and normal for the Christian life. And so if you wait until there's a period where you don't have struggle with sin or doubt, you'll just never get baptized. There's this old hymn, you know, if you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. And so if you're waiting until you have it all together, you'll never come to the cross. And so if you trust Jesus for your salvation imperfectly, then you can... Uh, trust the picture of baptism despite your imperfect faith. The good news of the gospel is not that we're saved on the grounds of our perfect faith, we're saved on the grounds of the blood of Jesus, which is what we're saying in baptism. I was buried and I was raised. It's a passive. Jesus did this for me and I trust it to be finalized. The process of getting baptized here is you apply for baptism and you have an interview and then we baptize you. The interview is kind of more about uh, making sure folks know what they're signing up for. It's not necessarily the goal to like be weeding people out on the basis of figuring out if their faith is sucky or not. Mm-hmm. It's more like, hey, do you really know what this is? Because you don't want people who are like, hey, getting baptized looks like fun. I've always wanted to be wet in front of a group of people. That's not what we're doing here. And, and so trying to just be clear about some of that stuff and make sure people know your story. And they help you uh, tell your story in a coherent way so that when you're baptized, you can uh, share with the church what God's been doing in your life. I do think that being baptized in front of the whole church is a conviction of mine, not kind of like doing uh, you know, a backyard bucket on the head uh, is less ideal just because I think part of the pictures were being baptized into the church. The church is welcoming yep. the folks being baptized in the communion into fellowship. There are some youth ministries that'll do baptisms like at winter camp or something like that. And we don't do that partly because we want people not to get baptized into youth ministry, but to be baptized into the whole church. Mm-hmm. And so we typically do those three or four times a year in the service. And so we can celebrate a handful of people all at the same time. Great. You guys want to add anything? No, that's great. Okay. All right. How do I know the spirit is working? I've been a Christian for a while, but I feel like I can't get anywhere with my faith. Like I know I love God, but I feel I can't grow. Yeah, that's a that's a really great great question. I I, I appreciate um, someone who's, uh, you know, who has that experience. Um, the first, I I, I always I kind of always go back to. Um, ways in which we can practically think about these things, um, ways in which we can practically uh, say, is this the Lord? And so um, the first thing I would start is uh, looking at, um, do you, uh, how well 
um, do you know the God that you say that you love? How well do you know the God that you say that you love? And um, that takes a process of um, being in his word and knowing what he says. Uh, it takes a, it's, it's a part of the process of um, applying the gospel to your life, to your very life, to every moment of your life. Um, and uh, that, what, what that does is it creates moments and spaces for the spirit to work. Um, if, we, if we go around sort of with a head knowledge and even, a, even a, an emotional experience of loving God and following after him, but we don't put our, ourselves in spaces where we're increasingly applying the gospel to our lives and applying the word of God to our lives, um, whenever that happens, that's going to create tension. And through that tension, there's growth. The, 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 the most moments, the moments in my life where I've grown the most have been when I'm saying, okay, this is really difficult. And it doesn't seem, uh, you know, it doesn't feel like or seem like uh, God can help in this or, or I've just never invited him into this space. Um, but when I do and I submit myself to, uh, to God um, in those moments and in those spaces, that's when growth happens. And that's when you'll be able to see, whoa, I, I used to be like this. Now I'm like this. And that's an encouragement for faith. Um, and, then this, and then the second thing is being a part of a community of people who um, can encourage you is, is incredibly important because I don't know how many times the Spirit has worked in my life through uh, the people that I can, I've, I'm connected with that are His, uh, part of His people, um, people sitting at this very table where I'm just like, wow, the Spirit has worked in my life. It's undeniable because of this. Uh, I, I'm with these people who love me and care for me and are going to ask about me and they're going to they're gonna take, hey, I saw you say, said this. And that's a that's, but you say you believe this, um, and, and so it causes me to say, wow, let me let me recalibrate here. Let me let me let me open this up to what God has to say about this, and life happens from there. Life happens out of that space. That's great. Hey, Mark, could you talk a little bit about um, the part of that? I feel like I can't get anywhere. Maybe touch on feelings and whether that should be driving how you feel, if you feel close to God, how, what is the balance of that? Because it's, I think, vi very difficult in a culture where everything is feelings driven. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting aspect of it. But one of the things that I've seen in, I do a lot of, do a lot of counseling, do a lot of walking alongside people as I wrestle through questions like this. And one of the things I see people do, and I see this in myself as well, is we, we kind of, we give, too much we place too much stock in a particular moment uh so hey here was this here was this thing here was this moment of lust here was this moment of anger whatever it is this must mean i'm not as far along as i thought i was or i you know i feel like i i'm not where i ought to be uh that you know this must mean the spirit doesn't really work if i still struggle with this and there's certainly an element of you know necessary examining and saying it, where are the where are the flaws? Where are the weaknesses? Where are the opportunities to to grow? Like we want to be able to reflect on that and and do work and not just say, well, you know, everything's going to be okay. 
Um, but but the danger is when we get really myopically focused on one little thing, it's it's really easy to kind of miss the bigger picture. One of the encouragements of, of Paul in, in 1 Corinthians is he says, hey, you, you know, you were idolaters, you were adulterers, you were sinners. He says, but, but su- and such were some of you, but you've been washed, you've been cleansed, you've been sanctified. And it's kind of this imagery of um, we can look at one little moment, but Paul gives us the ability to kind of take a step back and look at the bigger picture of, of the trajectory of transformation that God is working in my life through the Spirit. And so I want to be able to take an individual moment of sin seriously and say, hey, this is something like I feel guilty, I feel bad, I need to repent, I need to ask forgiveness, I need to make this thing right, but I, I don't need to be crushed by this when I take it in consideration in light of, okay, it was, uh, I think it was maybe David Pallison some, said something like this, okay, you know, I used to get angry at my kids 10 times a week. This week, I got angry at them four times. Is it good that I got angry at my kids four times this week? No. Is it good that I got angry at my kids only four times this week. Yes, there's progress. Like I'm still not where I want to be, but it's easy for us to miss the progress. I think Satan really loves that when we get uh, overwhelmed by our continuing failures. It causes us to lose sight of God's grace and to to not see what he is actually doing. And so I'd really, somebody wrestling through, I'd really encourage them to go, hey, take that seriously. And at the same time, take a step back and kind of evaluate the transformation that has happened, even in the kind of the, the put off and put on uh, language that Paul uses in Ephesians 4 to go, hey, I used to do things like this. I'm finding more and more. There's more patience here. There's there's less anger. There's more kindness. There's more compassion. It's not perfect, but it is happening and it is growing. That's that's what we'd be looking for. And that, that leads not necessarily to feelings of accomplishment or achievement or self-righteousness, but it ought to lead to feelings of, of hope and joy and contentment and anticipation of what God is already up to and what he is going to continue to do. Yeah, I love that. And it really speaks to what Arnold was saying about being in a community, because sometimes we can't see something about ourselves, but other people, when we invite them in to speak into it, they see things um, and it's very encouraging. So that's great. Great. Okay. Next question. Um, What can I do to help a suicidal friend without being forceful? And I want to tack on to that. What is someone's responsibility what responsibility do they have? Is it their responsibility to carry the weight? What advice would you give? I think the first thing we need to do in interacting with someone who has suicidal ideation is, uh, one, believe them and take it seriously. Mm-hmm. And by that, what I mean is take it more seriously than they're even doing that. Like, people will say they're suicidal and on a variety of spectrums from 1 to 10 be varying degrees of suicidal, right? There's 10 out of 10 suicidal. Then there's like two out of 10 suicidal. Like there's very suicidal ideation. And I would say that the most important thing, especially this is for our high school students, high schoolers need to understand that the best thing that you can do to help someone who's suicidal is to not be the main person helping someone who's suicidal. That's right. It's very important that high schoolers recognize that uh, the can you keep a secret, don't tell anybody I'm suicidal type confession is... Uh, manipulative and unhealthy and it's not good for you and it's not good for them. The most helpful thing talking to a couple of my therapist friends when someone's suicidal that they even recommend parents to do is take it so seriously. You take someone down to a clinic right now and going like, we're not messing around with life and death. This is a big deal. I'm taking you seriously. And you even take them more seriously than maybe they're taking seriously. Like if someone tells you I'm suicidal and they're like four out of 10 suicidal, if you treat it like they're 10 out of 10 suicidal and you bring it straight to pastors, straight to parents, straight to clinical health professionals, uh, you're actually helping them kind of get calibrated and get the help and support that they need. 
And so depending on someone's family network, family network, family system, caregiver, caregivers, those types of things, it might be more complicated. But generally speaking, I want you to know that if even if you told someone, I won't tell anybody, I promise, break that promise and tell someone what help you need. Like this is true for therapists, this is true for pastors. Like there's this idea like mandatory reporting that's like no matter what precondition you set to secrecy, if someone's a heart threat to self or threat to others, you tell someone who needs to know these things. And so just like if someone tells you, like, hey, don't tell anyone, but I'm thinking about bringing a gun to school tomorrow, uh, you the right thing to do is to break that confidence and tell the right people this is what's going to happen. If someone says, don't tell anyone, but I think I might shoot myself tomorrow, the right thing to do is to break that confidence and get the person help they need. Even if it means that you end up burning the bridge on that relationship, that person, if they make it through this episode, when they are wiser and older, will look back and be grateful for you for violating that confidence and breaking that relationship. And so if you're talking to someone who's suicidal, it's different like when someone says I'm depressed and I'm having a hard time, you know, you, you move to them with compassion, curiosity, you ask them questions, you ask when's it good, when's it bad, what makes it worse, what makes it better, there's tons of curiosity. But as soon as someone is making threats or making plans to harm themselves or harm other people, it's important that you uh, involve uh, adults who are wiser and have access to resources and care that you don't have to provide. So I hope that you hear this with one clear thing. It's not your responsibility to help them besides by connecting them the help that they may need. And that will be very hard because they might feel like you betrayed their trust. And I want to say you did for good reasons and just be unapologetic about that. That's great. Um, Okay, one of the hot topics right now is with the Supreme Court about Roe versus Wade. What are your thoughts about that? What are my thoughts? I have thoughts. Um, There are two big things that come to mind, and Arnold, Seth, Robin, you as well, feel free to kind of tack on because we don't have enough time in this podcast to do this exhaustively, but there's a handful of different things to hit on. But two things that come to mind for me, one is – I, I believe life begins at conception. Uh, there is a new set of DNA. There's new chromosomes that aren't the same as the host. It's a, it's a new living being um, at conception. Um, and, and so, like, that's, that's a personal conviction of mine. Uh, we would believe that as a church as well. Um, and so just going to be clear and unapologetic about that. Okay. Um, the second thing that comes to mind for me is... Um, you know, and this Roe versus Wade is obviously implied in this, but um, the the church at large, historically over the past several decades, has not handled the topic of abortion well. And by that, I don't mean like that we haven't handled pro life things well in terms of care and foster care. Like, there's been lots of things we've done, but but specifically caring for those who have made the decision to have an abortion um, or have been forced into some of those decisions, maybe that decision has been taken away from them. The church has not done a great job historically at caring for folks in those situations in, in the way that we talk about abortion in the way that we talk about it as if it's a, you know, uh, some sort of obviously simple decision for people who are going through immensely difficult circumstances. And so I just want to acknowledge that uh, a lot of the outrage that is happening in response to, to the possibility of Roe versus Wade being overturned is, is people who feel like, Nobody cares. Nobody hears. Nobody understands the the pain and the suffering that's been a part of this. It's been a part of my story. So I, I don't have to like the solution, which is we want to keep Roe versus Wade, but I do want to still be compassionate towards the suffering and the fear that's there for people who feel like 
I've already had all these other choices taken away from me by people in power. Here's another choice that's going to be taken away. So there's a, there's a tension in that. There's a compassion I have towards that. And at the same time, personally, I would love to see Roe versus Wade overturned. Yeah, one thing I'd add to that, when I talk to my friends and family who have had abortions and I ask them about how that was, what they did, uh, one I want to say is they are not idiots. And the kind of rhetoric that just no. presumes that anyone disagrees with us as idiots are just, is just silly. Um, a lot of them are smarter than uh, a lot of the people at this church for a variety of ways. You know, some of the people at this table even, maybe. Some of them are smarter than me. I don't even know. We didn't take IQ tests. But the point is they're not idiots. And there's that. And two, they did so out of some belief that what they did was right. People don't generally walk around going, how can I do the wrong thing? Yep. So they've been somehow misguided. One of them in particular was told by a pastor that life doesn't begin until you take a breath. So go for it. And so the church, even like when Roe v. Wade was passed in 1973, it was a 7-2 decision, and the church didn't really care about it until a couple decades later when it served their purposes politically. And so there's great hypocrisy and poor instruction done by the church. And so the church making itself out to be this kind of pure warrior in this conversation is pretty silly to me because the history says otherwise. And I can argue to blue in the face that life begins at conception. But part of it is recognizing that, like, you know, it costs about $10,000 to have a baby. And even today, I was looking at headlines, there's this formula shortage. They're talking about how the formula shortage is good for the stocks of the formula makers because it's, you know, and I'm going, we're not a pro-life society. We're talking about babies being hungry, and they're talking about how Abbott is profiting from this because the stock price is going up. And just seeing how like economic insecurity, financial insecurity, so many things are broader issues regarding pro-life culture in a, in a society that truly values uh, born children and not just being anti-abortion. And so I think that being broadly pro-life and creating social values that actually support and care for young children, besides just making sure they're born, is important. And all that being said, I'm, I would love to see Roe v. Wade go. Even though if it does, it'll really only lower abortions by 14% because most state laws still support the right to do it. So it's not like abortions go to zero afterwards. So it's hardly like a woohoo, things go to zero now. Like there's a there's a long legal situation that needs to get resolved. Yep. And it's all related to the dignity and value of humanity at any point from womb to tomb. And so I just think there needs to be a little bit more broad humility and just humanizing of folks who have made that choice, even though, like I can argue with them all day long that I was wrong, but at the end of the day, they're humans made in God's image and I need to love them and move towards them and help them see this. But it's it's really, like, here's one of the traumatic things, is that when people believe they made the right choice, to convince them otherwise after the fact is really difficult because they have to, like, it's a huge emotional barrier. And just to not pretend like that's not true. Like, our, our, our proclivity to defend our decisions because we can't handle the thought or shame of being wrong as a, as a human species is insane. And so, like I said, with my friends and family, we've had abortions it's like the we like to think we're rational creatures but we're way more emotional relational and it takes a long time for someone to change their view on this stuff they're not going to like read an article about life being in conception and be like oh duh i'm changed like that's it's just not really how people change they change through loving relationships and so being committed to the long haul for that is what we really need that's great and i i would add to that that if this topic is something that a situation you find yourself in, you find friends in. Um, we would love to move close to them. We would love to reach out to them. We'd love to talk to them. You guys aren't alone. And so um, you have a friend here 
in us and not that we're going to tell you what to do, but we're going to just give you some love and um, good information. And so that door is always open. All right. Next question. How should I act towards people who are emotionally draining and treat you unfairly, especially when they're your parents or family members? How can I act towards them in a way that honors God? First thing I'd say is if anyone gives you a bad feeling ever, cancel them and don't spend any more time with them. <laughs> All it right, is, we can move on to the next question. It is, okay. very, it, is, it is very important. You only surround yourself with people who give you positive vibes always <laughs> if you really want to be the best you. <laughs> next question. So you're out. Oh, gosh. So, okay, so. So how, how emotionally draining people are and how they feel about that. I do think it's important to understand why they're emotionally draining. Sometimes people are emotionally draining because they're challenging you and you don't like being challenged. Sometimes they're emotionally draining because they don't understand you. So being able to articulate why you find them emotionally draining, not just that you find them emotionally draining, is I think helpful because uh, if I, if like say Mark Andrus, say I find him emotionally draining, if I just know that I go into Mark's presence and I leave Mark's presence and I feel like I need a nap, I can't just come to him and tell him, you make me feel like I need to take a nap. But sometimes there's like a deeper thing going on in me that I need to work on. Like, what is it about Mark? And it feels like, oh, I don't feel like he's curious. I don't feel like he's interested. I don't feel like he understands me. And I feel like he assumes he does. So what's actually constructive is to go to Mark and be like, hey, Mark, I feel like you think you understand me, but I don't think you understand me. There's actually a gap in this. And so trying to get down to like the what or the why behind the emotion of emotionally draining is helpful, especially like with parents, like being able to interact over what's going on, not just over like the result of what's going on. It's helpful. And that takes a lot of self-awareness and I think it's also important to recognize that if someone's triggering you, it's because you have triggers, not necessarily because of them. Like if someone's pushing my buttons, they're my buttons, and I need to own that I have buttons. And where do those buttons come from, and what do I do about them? And that's a pretty difficult process, and it takes a lot of time and thought and prayer and conversations. But that's where I'd go from there. Yeah. Oh, uh, I was just going to say, I think um, from a practical standpoint, um, if you're wanting to um, make a, a step, towards this uh relationship in this in the way of like especially if it's an unavoidable one like parents and you got to deal with them anyways and you want to you want to just sort of make a step towards being able to uh interact with them in a non-negative way um i think what's very important is to begin praying for them um even even daily uh praying for them um praying for them specifically uh and 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 i think what you'll see over time is uh your own heart begin to soften towards them. I think you'll begin to see the Lord begin to um, answer your prayer in ways that you wouldn't expect, um, in ways that it might be he changes them, it might be he changes you. Um, but either way, uh, beginning to pray for them uh, gets just, it does something to, uh, to help in that process. And if I could just quickly add, one thing I really appreciate the, the aspect of that question, which is, hey, I I know and I want I know I need to and I want to honor these people who are part of my family, even though sometimes they make it hard to do so. Like, I appreciate the inclusion of that. That indicates there's a desire, like I want to honor God in this, even though it's going to be difficult. Um, God will help with that. Uh, that's you know, kind of tacking on what Arnold said, like the aspect of praying for your own heart and praying for the people who do push those those buttons and, and set off those triggers, like. God will honor that prayer. That's in that's in alignment with His character. Uh, just a, a caveat, I, I would say, is like especially as uh, as you get into kind of older teenage high school years, one of the one of the biggest difficulties parents face 
is that transition from, you know, the commandments and the strict boundaries as younger, you know, elementary age kids to, you know, moving into a place and of having conversations with your kids, talking them through difficult topics. That's, that, that's really hard for parents. Um, and so as much as parents should be the ones kind of leaning into that difficulty, one of the, one of the ways that God might actually be using you high schoolers is helping lead your parents into that by ex- expressing compassion to them like being patient with them because it's a really hard transition for them as hard as it is for you. I can, I can almost guarantee you it's just as hard for them. And so even to enter in with curiosity and honesty with them and kind of the way that Seth said to go, Hey guys, um, you know, you, you have these restrictions, these rules, the way you talk to me, anytime I raise a grievance or I disagree about something, you shut me down or you dismiss my feelings, whatever those different experiences are to be able to share honestly, not attackingly with them. Like if, I'd like to think that in most loving relationships, if I bring something to somebody like, Hey, you, you may not realize it, but you do this and this is the impact it has on me. I would want to hear that and receive it and try to interact with you differently. Uh, and so you can actually give your parents a gift and kind of, uh, not like I said, not defensively or attacking, just bringing that honestly to them and say, Hey, I want to help you love me because I want to honor you. And sometimes because of this, you kind of make it hard and just be honest about that kind of conversation. Yeah, this this was probably not surprising, but when I talked to parents who are going, how do I handle emotionally draining people, especially my teenagers? That That's a question that comes a lot. I'm sure, Robin, you get that a ton. Yeah. Uh, and one of the quotes I always take them to is when Eugene Peterson says that God designed adolescence in part because it's what people in their 40s needed to deal with for them to go to the next phase of their own maturity. And so you can tell them, hey, mom and dad, my adolescence is a gift to you so you can get more mature and <laughs> let me know how that goes. Yeah, that but, I, but I'm curious, Robin, given your what you do in working with parents a lot of times, how do you, what do you have to say on this question? I think the biggest thing is, um, I think uh, as humans, we assume everybody can read our mind and our thoughts and know our motives and that's just not true. And so you might be struggling with something with a parent or a sibling and think they know all about it. And I just would encourage you not to assume that, um, to encourage you to talk to them, like what Mark was saying, you know, just an honest conversation. Uh, sometimes you might think, you know, their motives and, and that might not be quite the case. And so we all have room to grow. And so I would just mainly go in, not assuming people, can read your mind so i knew you'd say that oh <laughs> you just read kidding. my mind <laughs> just all right good, did, good just to be clear i did not know she'd say that <laughs> okay um this next question is about dating so i don't know if you guys all dated in high school um that would have been can... one of the other things i would have changed from high school i would have actually had the opportunity to do that <laughs> okay all right so i'm gonna back out of this question <laughs> so Flip, flip back to your high school years. Mark has six kids and he didn't date in high school. So. Yeah, so. <laughs> yes. It wasn't for lack of trying. There's just a lot of rejection. <laughs> okay, what should I do about wanting to date a non-Christian, but knowing that it will help me to stray away from God and I don't want to fall into that? So let's talk a little bit about dating relationships, Christian and non-Christian. That's great. Easy answer. I'll just say don't do that. Yeah, but not always had that simple. Is it that, or is it that simple? I think if you're if you're self aware enough to know this is going to lead me away from the Lord, then don't do it. And that's what it sounds like in that question. You're like, ah, I think this will probably lead me away from the Lord. Should I do it or not? The answer to that is, uh, no, don't do that. And I think that uh, the Lord will be pleased by that, and he'll appreciate that. 
I think that the whole idea of being yoked or connected, uh, I think that uh, what we're kind of demonstrating when we do interfaith dating is we're, like, we're admitting that our faith is actually not the centerpiece of our worldview, but it's actually just on the periphery, and that what's actually centered to our worldview is some type of secular humanism, that we use Christianity in our assumptions rather than are shaped by Christianity in total. I think if you see the goal and purpose of your life as uh, being participating in the mission of God to subdue and have dominion over the earth, that in working and, and, and being educated and developing, that I'm participating in what God's doing in the world through loving my neighbor and establishing relationships, then... Um, then you'll want someone who's united in purpose with you. And if you're dating someone and you know you're not united in purpose, then you're kind of admitting to them and to yourself that you're willing to use them uh, for uh, some period of time that is uh, going to end, period. And so uh, I think it's actually dehumanizing to date someone with a different world within you because you're saying, I'm just kind of going to use you for my self-esteem or physical pleasure or to kill time until someone comes along who actually is united with me in purpose. So I, it, when I did in high school, I had a pretty strict, if someone's not united to me in general on purpose, then I'm not going to do it. And I, I was really fast. I dated a lot of people for about a week and a half throughout middle school and high school because as soon as I found out, oh, we're not on the same page, I was like, well, we're done here. And I also had a really low tolerance for drama. Someone was like, I'm mad at you. And I said, well, why? And they said, I'm not t- I don't want to talk to you about it. And I was like, okay, well, then we're breaking up. It's done. So <laughs> I said a low drama tolerance and a low different page tolerance. And I feel like it made my life a little simpler, maybe too simple, <laughs> a little more simple. Yeah, but not surprising. I don't think any, any of us are surprised by that. So, so one thing that I have heard um, some girls say is, but what if nobody else comes around? And I think to think through that is God has good gifts for you. He has a good plan for you. And so the perspective, it's really hard at this age, but just going, this, these are biblical principles to be equally yoked. And he does, like Seth said, he does bless that. So he has good things in store for you. Yeah, I do think if you're a guy listening to this, then uh, the numbers are in your favor because the number of solid young women I know is so much higher than the number of solid young men I know. <laughs> it's almost 10 to 1 maybe 12 to one, if I like really thought deeply that, so I can imagine being a young woman who loves Jesus and being like, well, this is like hunger games out here trying to find the man who actually loves Jesus and has a, has a spine to act on something Mm -hmm. and driven. And, and that would be discouraging. I, I feel like that's just real. And so I think there's a real place for lament and, and discontent and some of that that's appropriate. I would say that, you know, your, your dignity and value, I would hope drives you to go, I'm, I'm worth being patient on this and not saying I'm, uh, you're, you're more about, you're so valuable. It's worth, uh, you being patient on this. And especially for the guys out there, I just hope you step up and be a little wise, be a little driven, love the Lord more than anything else. Uh, cause it's, a, it's a tough, it's a tough world. That there would be a single solid female who loves Jesus because there's not a lot of, uh, not a lot of fruit on the tree. It's true. That's, that is true. Okay, so I'm going to read this question the way it came in, because I would love for you to pick up on um, the wording of it. Why does God give us insecurities? For example, anxiety and mental challenges like depression. So I guess the question first that I'd like you to answer is, does God give us insecurities? I'll, uh, I'll start on that. 
I, I noticed the wording on that too. And, um, there is a, there's a, a wrestling attention there in which God is sovereign in how we are formed and made. Um, that's in Psalm 139 says he knit you together in your mother's womb. So he's, he's intricately involved in that process. He makes no mistakes. And at the same time you go, well, okay, God allowed this to happen. And yet here are these insecurities. What's the, what's the purpose of them? Um, we, we have to wrestle with, with God's role in that for sure. Um, but the, the thing I would point to is part of the part of the widespread effects of the fall in Genesis 3 is that every single human being experiences some kind of brokenness. It's, it's the common human experience in the sinful world that we're a part of. Um, and so I, I would say it, it's probably not particularly helpful to look at insecurities, anxiety, fear, depression, disabilities, those sorts of things. It's probably not helpful to, to look at those primarily through the lens of God has given this to me as if there's some lesson I need to learn or some special calling I have, or he's, you know, trying to punish me. That's, that's probably not going to get you anywhere, but rather to look through it through the lens of this is a common human experience. This is, uh, this is a brokenness that exists because of sin outside of me and sin within me, which also means it's an area in which there's a beautiful possibility for redemption, um, for reconciliation, for God to come and, and take this thing that's broken and begin the process of, of making it new. That's probably where I'd start just by kind of framing, does God give it? Where does it come from? What does it mean? I think another question is what is security? I think God designed the world in such a way that we're supposed to get security through meaningful connected relationships, both to him and to other people. So to some degree when we're experiencing insecurity, the fruit of that's not to just go deep into myself and become secure on my own, but it's actually to connect and to reach out and to, and, and to bond with others in meaningful, secure, loving, attached ways. And so I was talking to someone today who's like, I'm really struggling with worry or stress. I was asking about what it was. And he said, well, like uh, through the business, his company, he's running stuff, he's worried, stressed about it. I'm like, sometimes there's a type of stress that leads to action and God gives it to you and it's good. You know, you bring, you're preoccupied, things come to mind, you act. There's another type of stress that leads to inaction and that's a problem, right? Kind of like you spiral. And so some of the reason why God makes us able to experience insecurity is because he wants us to find security in the context of warm, connected, loving relationships, especially with him, but also through other people. And so I would see insecurities as opportunities to be vulnerable and walk close to people and connect with people and allow yourself to be seen, known, and cared for. That nobody is designed to be secure on their own as an island. That Adam and Eve were designed to connect with the Lord. And so there's always a derivative nature to our security. And so um, sometimes anxiety can be called overfunctioning, uh, thinking about something too much, depression's underfunctioning, not doing enough in, in terms of like our nervous system. And so sometimes anxiety, uh, a lot of times uh, family therapists will talk about how anxiety is not necessarily in someone, it's between people, right? So following our anxiety to, am I nervous about disappointing someone or something or a system or a team or a, or a tribe? Or depression can also be, um, you know, am I feeling powerless to affect my circumstances, my reality? So I think being curious about those things and asking, in what relationships am I going to find security or establish security through connected curiosity, uh, meaningful attachment? I think that God designed us on purpose that way to some degree because he's a relational God, triune, Father, Son, Spirit, and he wants us to be connected in relationships just like he is. Yeah, um, I think um, that what I think I'm going to say is probably going to be a little bit tough to hear, but I think I just want to bring the the gospel to bear on it. Um, there's a there's a moment when um, 
the disciples are asking Jesus about a, a man who was born blind, whether his whether it was because he sinned or his parents sinned, and and Jesus's answer is just baffling there, and he says, it's not that this man sinned, um, it, or that his parents sinned, but it's so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And I think I've uh, shared with you from my own personal life at times, if you've um, heard me teach on Wednesdays. Uh, you know, there's been times in my life where I've uh, suffered from uh, depression, even a deep depression. And it was miserable while I was going through it, and I would not wish it upon anybody. And yet there's a space where I'm, like, really grateful for it um, because it is through that that I actually became closer to God, and I knew that God is not a God who just exists in Sunday school or in uh, the church um, building, but he finds his way into every area of my life, including a, a de debilitating depression. And uh, he's bigger than that and stronger than that and better than that, and he's just powerful enough to, to save me and to redeem even those moments um, so that now when um, people come and they ask me a question or they are feeling depressed or anxious and I can now identify with them. I can share in that suffering and I can understand them and I can encourage them with the, um, having gone there before. And so, and I can testify to what God has done and to his beauty and greatness. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Okay. I think we have time for two more. Um, this next question, this is what's hard is we don't have the person sitting here to ask follow-up questions. So it says, how should we deal with the LGBTQ community? And I'll just say from, um, me working with students, I, I feel like usually when that question starts, they want a hard black and white answer, which that's not, that's not real life. And so what would your response to that question be? So I have a couple of friends who are lesbians, some of them married, some of them not. You know, we, Dan and I have them at our house. We eat brisket together because that's the only good thing to eat. Everything else is worse than brisket. Amen. And and a lot of it is how should we be to blank community? To help me always feels like basically the same answer. You know, they're they're humans made in God's image, full of dignity and value, with uh, textured pasts that have shaped them. You know, the nature nurture deba like debate. You know, we're we're hugely shaped by our stories, and so I always find that people are objectively interesting. I had a mentor one time said that people are interesting, and if you don't see that, then that's your problem. And and so I kind of come to any group of people. So part of it is I don't like treating people as groups. That's I right. like treating people as people, yeah. right? So, like, uh, nobody would like it if I wouldn't like it if I got lumped in with all the Christians, right? Even though, like, because I'm like, eh, how about if someone's like, oh, I know how you Christians are. I'd be like, well, that kind of stinks because now you've already ended the relationship before you got to know me. And so I think that relationship, curiosity, connection is a big deal. And part of it is like, you know, these these ladies that Taylor and I are friends with, you know, they come to Gateway a handful of times. They kind of, you know, know what we think about stuff. And the thing I'm grateful for with them is they're at least secure enough to not be all super triggered that we might disagree with them on some stuff. Like, so that's makes it possible to have a relationship. You know, there are other folks, you know, Taryn, I even had a, a guy who's exclusively same-sex attracted. I think now he talks about himself as being gay, live with us for a year. He's a good friend of ours, and he wrestled a lot more. And, and so I've, I've had mostly 
a good, not like the experiences on the internet where people are all triggered and destructive and cancel culture and blah, blah, blah. But folks who are, you know, trying to figure out who they are and how they're living and walking through stuff just like we are and being able to have open, honest conversations about some of that stuff at tables around meals. And you could swap LGBTQ for NASCAR fans or, um, you know, people who like the Dallas Cowboys or whatever it is, you know. Although they're all the same. Yeah, Dallas Cowboys <laughs> fans are all the same. Yeah, Bobby, if you're listening to this, I'm talking to you. Yeah, and so any group of people that's like I'm not a part of, right? So I could say Mormons, or I could say Islam, like Muslims, or I could say atheists, right? You can figure out any any group that I'm not a part of and go, how do I treat that group? And it's like, well, I want to treat them with dignity, respect, curiosity, value, inclusion, hospitality, and just recognize that uh, I probably have a lot to learn. I still have my convictions about Jesus and the Lord and faith in the gospel, and and I think a lot of folks aren't a part of the, quote, Christian group, end quote, because they've had a lot of bad experiences with Christians and churches and trying to just treat them like humans without having really a huge agenda. Because part of it is even, like, I believe that God saves people that I'm not super anxious about, am I doing the right mm-hmm. thing or not? I you know I'm, I believe God's sovereign over that, and so I really want to love them and be open and honest and transparent and clear where appropriate, but, you know, if... I find myself, if I find myself needing to like lead with my convictions about something, that's not really how you establish any relationship. Like there's connection, curiosity, that type of stuff. Just a quick thing I would add. I mean, the short answer is love them. Um, that's where the disagreement comes in. It's like, you might say, well, I'm loving them by telling them the truth about what I believe and leaving my convictions. Like Seth said, probably is perceived as the most loving thing. Um, but I think what I would like the, the number one encouragement I would give is, um, you know, you you know there's going to be a difference in belief and conviction and worldview and perspective and all sorts of things. Like, that's not going to be a surprise if you're coming from a kind of evangelical Christian background, interacting with folks who identify and part of this community. That's not hard. Sometimes what's hard is actually the best thing you can do, which is to see this person as even, even if they wouldn't say I'm a Christian, like there's still somebody that's made in the image of God. How can you see and appreciate God on display in them through their gifting, through their personality, through their ability to connect with their people. Like, how can you genuinely appreciate who this individual person is, not this broader group um, where you begin to humanize someone, interact with them for who they are, how God has made them. That also helps you um, interact with them more, find things that like, Hey, we share values in a lot of these sorts of ways. It tears apart some of the us versus them rhetoric that ends up in there. And it, and it gives you a whole lot more specific ways, not just to, to pray, God, change X, Y, and Z about this person. God, thank you for how you have made this this person, this boy, this girl, this whoever it is. Like, thank you for the way that I see your kindness in them. Mm-hmm. Like that even does that does so much in my own heart, not just for people in the LGBTQ community, but anybody who's like, especially those kind of adversaries, those people like the the draining relationships that Seth, that Seth mentioned before. Anybody where I, I have a hard time loving this person best thing I can do is go, how can I see even the smallest aspect of God at work in them and genuinely thank God for it? That's great. Okay. Well, last question. Um, what is one piece of wisdom you would give someone, uh, who are getting through the in-between of a childlike faith and a deeper adult faith? One piece of wisdom. I talk about, uh, you know how you go through physical puberty when you all you have this uh, growth spurt, and uh, you have a, a increased level of angst, and 
you know, new hormones and you think you're smarter than your parents, et cetera. You know, there's, there's physical puberty. I think there's also what I would call a spiritual puberty where it's like this growth spurt, increased angst. And by that, I mean like lots of new questions, uh, real desire for autonomy and wisdom, uh, and even questions that make your parents anxious or pastors anxious. And so I think that spiritual puberty, a lot of what happens is there's like that, that period of angst and nervousness and question asking, I think, ask all the questions. And I'd say this. Um, so one, one thing I would say, here's a belief that I think will help you through the season. Believe that you are never going to ask an original question. Yeah. <laughs> but take your questions seriously yes. and find answers to them. Right? Questions about the Bible's authority. Questions about sexuality. Questions about um, what to do with uh, the poor. Questions about um, how to interact with competing worldviews. All these questions have been asked and answered by the church for 2,000 plus years. And so if I believe that I'm not going to ask any original question, then it actually gives me this freedom or this license to go and find the answer that's out there. The answer is out there. And I don't mean to say you're not going to ask an original question as a way of shaming you or making you feel small, but of just recognizing people have been asking questions for thousands of years, and it's pretty arrogant to think that I'm going to come up with a new one. Uh, they might It might be unique to your context, but the substance of the question is going to be similar. And so believe you're not going to ask any original questions, but then take your questions seriously and find answers to them and, and do the work that direction. Great. Yeah, I would say uh, I, there is a component of faith that needs to come into this space where uh, it, 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 it does take a continual bringing, uh, you know, a, a decision of faith to move into the next space. Um, and so I think that just kind of keeping that in mind, um, you're not going to go into the ne this next space uh, just saying, I'm just being honest with how I'm feeling um, and, and, and these questions I'm having and I'm going through, you know, I, I'm just having these doubts and that sort of thing um, because real quickly that can become a real dishonest space where, um, you know, you're not, and you're not asking these questions objectively, but you're actually asking these questions um, uh, out of a decision to maybe not want to follow God in a certain area of your life. Um, I just feel like those things go hand in hand. And so I just would advise as you're entering into that space, I, I loved everything Seth said there, um, uh, but I would also encourage you to bring a new, uh, like recognize I have to bring a new area of faith here. And it's not going to be like the faith when I was, you know, to use um, the language of Seth, when I was prepubescent. It's not prepubescent faith. That was kind of my, my parents' faith. This is my faith now. And uh, this is my faith. And so, um, yeah, just keeping that in mind, I think, is important. And one, one piece of advice I would offer is um, it, it might be peers, but more than likely it's going to be a trusted mentor, um, you know, may, might or might not be a parent, but but somebody older and further along than you are, um, to have somebody in your life who has permission to ask you questions that you don't want to be asked, um, who's going to check in with you, who not just like hold you accountable and put your feet to the fire when you screw up, but somebody who's going to, at least it has that permission and access to, to see that and to call you on that and to love you through it. Um, because faith, faith automatically leads to action. And we don't always take those actions in the correct direction, not not necessarily because we're, you know, 
maleficent or no. malicious in our intentions, but simply because we're we're young. Yeah, our voices and, crack sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're we're young, we're foolish, and and we we don't know. And so the importance of having that kind of trusted mentor who's going to be able to see that and go, hey, I get your intention might be a little misguided. What if we took the action in this That's direction great. and just yeah. having that kind of person with that kind of access to you? Um, worst thing you can do is just be in isolation or be in an echo chamber with a bunch of people who disagree with you. Yeah. If you want to be in the top 1% of wisdom, have a mentor and listen to them because most people never actually do that. That's Not right. just teenagers, adults. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so if you, it's pretty easy to set yourself apart in wisdom if you would just find a mentor and listen to them because it's so rare, but it's so biblically warranted. That's like seeking out counselors is part of Proverbs 1, getting wisdom. So the fact they asked this question and hopefully they're answering, listening to this podcast is a great step in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. And personally, my own growth has happened when I've done what Seth just said. That's the, where my growth, most, most growth has happened. Yep, same here. So I would just leave with, if you have an area you want to grow in, like say prayer, then maybe ask your mentor, who are five people that you know mm. that are great prayer warriors? And then just go talk to them. Ask them questions. You could fill that blank in with anything. Um, Maybe people who are consistently studying their Bible, people who are consistently curious. Uh, there's a lot of great people here at Gateway. And so uh, just asking the question who's out there, talking to people, interviewing them, um, you'll get little nuggets from people and the Lord will use those to grow you. So mm -hmm. anyway, I want to say thank you to Mark and to Seth and to Arnold and to those of you who sent in questions. We appreciate you and we um, are looking forward to seeing you next year on Wednesday nights. Absolutely. Thanks for hosting, Robin. I'd add too, if any of your parents need mentors, they should ask Robin Howie because uh, your parents probably need mentors too. Make sure you tell them that. Tell them that Pastor Seth said you need a mentor and uh, see how that goes. Yeah. I'm just setting you up for success. Yeah, see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs>